Well, folks, let me introduce myself. I'm Jeff Birch, and it's great to be back with all of you. When I got up this morning and was praying about coming in, Evie looks at me and she says, Jeff, don't worry. Don't fret about this. It's like riding a bike. To which I responded, but what if I was no good at riding a bike in the first place? You have no idea in terms of getting back. So, so bear with me. I don't know if this will be mid-season form or not, but I plan on coming back each week. And so I hope to uh, knock off the rust, if you will. First of all, I just want to say thank you for you all giving Evie and I a tremendous gift in this uh, sabbatical these months. Not only the practical side of it, of being able to get a little surgery out of the way and feeling good and healthy, but I want to thank Andrew for these months of his preaching and teaching and leading you all. I want to thank the session and the elders uh, for, one, giving us this gift. You know, I would say not only getting the surgery done, but then also getting to spend a month in Oklahoma with some dear friends uh, and being able to worship out there and seeing what the Lord was doing was a tremendous gift. And then coming home and seeing that my office has been refreshed, I got to admit, took me a couple days. I was sitting in there going, I think I'm just going to enjoy this for a while. And then I go, oh, yeah, Sunday's coming. I better think about a sermon and stuff like that. But just what a wonderful encouragement it was. And so I want to thank you all, leadership and congregation, for giving us just a tremendous time. And I have good news. Evie and I were together for four months, okay? Just us. We still like each other. I think that's a wonderful praise, the fact that we look at each other and we go, yes, I like you. I can hang out with you a little bit. That was a whole lot of fun. Before we dive in and get down to business, yes, there will be a sermon this morning. So I know it's the first day of football season, my t- and I could still be selfish, Jeff. My team doesn't come on until 4.30. So sit back and enjoy yourself. If your team comes on at 1 o'clock, so sorry. My team comes on at 4.30. So that's when we're all, you know ready to be home. And some of you, your team comes on tomorrow night. I hope you packed a lunch. You're, you're in here for a while. One of the things that always, they say, always stays the same is change. Change and transition is the one thing. And so one announcement I want to make, I've emailed the elders and the deacons, they're aware of this. Our dear friend, Cheryl Ward, who has worked as our administrative secretary in the office for 15 years, Cheryl? Am I counting right? 15 years? is stepping down to pursue other callings, things with bookkeeping and accounting and whatnot, at the end of September. And so the session will be meeting Tuesday night, beginning the process of what that looks like to replace the irreplaceable. And so we want to say thank you to Cheryl. She's she's not going anywhere. She'll still be here, all of that. But we did want to announce, and please be in prayer for us as a leadership as we begin that process and begin to go through that. Now, down to business. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We are looking, we're going to begin a series of studies in the Gospel of Mark, and so we'll be looking at that for quite some time. And so let's take a look at the Word of God from Mark 1 and verses 1 through 8. Mark begins the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would give us an awareness of what we are doing when we come before you through your word. That your word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So that it's not just any kind of literature, but it's alive. You are acting upon us as we engage you in your word. So this is, in a sense, a very real engagement, a very real confrontation where you are addressing us. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our ears, open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, illumine us, that we would know how you want us to respond, for we cannot be neutral towards your word. If we're approaching a word just simply trying to, in a sense, break it down, understand everything, just kind of, in a sense, coming above your word, Lord, we need to come under your word, not alongside, not above, but under its authority, recognizing you act upon us in and through your word. So illumine us now as we begin this trek through Mark's gospel, looking at the life of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, why are we studying the life of Jesus and the gospel of Mark this fall? Why did I choose to do a a study such as this? Well, several different reasons. Let me just bring you some of the practical things. You know, four months off, you have time to think and ponder. You know, the no time excuse can't be an excuse when you have a four-month sabbatical. You know, if I said I have no time for that, I think God's seeing right through that. But a couple of practical things, a couple of different things. First of all, as I try to bring the word of God to you, Week after week, I try to always balance out the whole counsel of God, Old Testament to New Testament. So very simply, we went through Proverbs in the winter and spring, and I was like, well, it's time for a New Testament. Then as Andrew and I were thinking together, and I was listening to what he would be going through with the summer, the infancy narratives, especially uh, the birth and kind of the roots of Jesus through the Gospel of Luke, in my mind I went, I think it seems good to be able to look at the life of Jesus, the career of Jesus. You know, you think to yourself, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Who is the son? Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? What are his aims? What are his purposes? What is his mission? What is it that he is all about? If he is the way, the truth, and the life, there probably can't be any more important question for us to know as to who is Jesus and what he came to do. Next, I try to stick a little bit to the historical church year. I was very glad when we had as part of our worship today to look at the Heidelberg Catechism because in a very practical sense, beyond the rich theology that's given to us there, it reminds us that we're rooted in the historical church. The church is not a new thing. It is not a new entity. We are not modern by any stretch of the word. We are rooted in something that truthfully didn't even begin in 
the early years A.D. The church is God's idea, God's institution began. Think about creation, think about fall and the immediate redemption that was given. The church is rooted in history and it's good for us to remind ourselves. So I like to go through in the preaching some of the historical year to look at the life of Jesus, to look at what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world, to then look at what did God do about that? How did God enter in? to the situation of what's wrong with us in the world, and then to look at practical issues of practical daily Christian living. Lastly, two more things influenced me as I thought about why go through the Gospel of Mark. One was the fact that this is an election year. Now, time out. I'm not about to preach on the election. I'm not about to preach politics. But... As the Apostle Paul said when he came to Corinth and he was on his missionary journeys, he says, I resolved, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Christ crucified. I can't help but notice as I look at our culture, and I happen to believe that the church ought to be the ones leading, not the ones mirroring. We ought to be the ones that are a light to the nations. In other words, by not only our proclamation of the truth of the gospel, but by our embodying in a life of passionate love towards God, towards one another, and towards our neighborhood, we ought to embody and flesh out the truth of the gospel. That we ought to be setting the pace. And when I happen to look at things, whether it's watching the news, whether it's even looking at Facebook, I see a whole lot more heat. Things like, Emotions and anger and worry and fr- oh, the election, the apocalypse is coming, look out. Rather than light, the proclamation and the embodiment of the truth of the gospel. And I think our gaze, our fix, our eyes ought to be focused and fixed on Jesus Christ. What did the writer to the Hebrews say? That we fix our gaze upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And then the second thing is, Vic brought this up, and I was so glad he did in announcing it, and Andrew prayed about it. I remember, and I'm with Vic, I don't remember what I did last weekend, but I remember 15 years ago today. I was having breakfast with our dear friend, Chuck Garriott, missionary now with ministry to the state with M&A. And Chuck and I were eating in a restaurant in Oklahoma called Brahms. And we're sitting there and we're having breakfast when all of a sudden... Chuck's secretary calls him and Evie calls me and says, you better get into the office and see what's going on. And of course, we probably all remember where we were 15 years ago today. And I think to myself again, how does God respond in a situation like this? And I was reminded of Psalm 2. Psalm 2 asks, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? And by the way, nations include America. Why do we Rage and peoples, peoples there as anyone, individuals, cultures, societies, governments, anyone who continues to reject and turn away from the will and wisdom of God. How does the Lord respond? Psalm 2 is very interesting because does God fret? Does God panic? Does God worry? It says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then this is my favorite verse out of that psalm. It's verse 6. 
It says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God's answer. See, I have no idea what kind of shape and how you were feeling coming to worship and coming to church today. Maybe some of you, you clapped, so I assume some of you said, Jeff's coming back today. We're going to church. This is good. Maybe some of you went, oh, Jeff's coming back today. I guess we're going. And that's okay, too. See, in a real sense, it doesn't matter how you felt coming to church. You came to the house of God where God has set his king, Jesus Christ, on his holy hill where we come to engage and meet with him, and he has come to meet with us. I can't think of a more important hour in the life of a week than coming with the people of God to get a taste of heaven to meet with Jesus Christ. I think there's far more going on that we can't even see when the saints gather in worship. God's answer to our lives individually, corporately, communally, collectively is Jesus Christ. He has set his king, and his king is Jesus. And do you want to know what the Gospel of Mark is about? It's all about Jesus. It's all about his king, what he came, who he is, and what he came to do. Tim Keller wrote a book on the Gospel of Mark several years back called The King's Cross. And in it he says, The historical Christian premises that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection form the central event of cosmic and human history as well as the central organizing principle of our lives. The whole story of the world and of how we fit into it is most clearly understood through a careful, direct look at the story of Jesus The whole story of the world, see, the whole story of the world is not this year's election. The whole story of the world, as tragic, as grave, and as Vic pointed out, as much good has come out of it, is not September 11th. The whole story of the world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the central event, and thus uh, how we fit into it is probably the most relevant question, relevant topic, we can look. Dr. Keller says, Mark does not read like a dry history. It is written in the present tense, often using words like immediately, to pack the account full of action. You can't help but notice the abruptness and breathless speed of the narrative. See, Mark's not like Matthew, Luke, and John. Matthew and Luke, they start, they'll give you a lot of history. Here's the roots of Jesus, genealogies, infancy and birth narratives, flight down to Egypt. Luke includes in there the manifesto of the fact of how Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. John, you want to talk about someone going deep? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He introduces us to this figure called the Logos. And then, and I love how the message translates this, the Logos became flesh and entered our neighborhood. You want to talk about something that's cool? God entered, broke into human history, and planted himself, took up stakes, embedded himself, in our neighborhood, in our world. Mark, in contrast to Matthew, Luke, and John, he is fast-paced, action-oriented, take a breath, you might miss something. That's kind of how Mark reads. 
And I like how Dr. Keller puts, he says, this gospel conveys then something very important about Jesus. He says, Jesus is not merely a historical figure, but a living reality, a person who addresses us today. And in the very first sentence, which is the sentence we're looking at this morning, see Jeff's back, we're getting through one verse. In the very first sentence, God has broken into history. Mark's style communicates a sense of crisis that the status quo has been ruptured. If Jesus is the true king, if Jesus is God's king set on God's holy hill and is the answer to our and the world's needs, then the key question, and Mark's gospel does provide a crisis point, the status quo is ruptured, the question is how will you respond? You cannot remain neutral. And let me also challenge you to one other thing before we dive into this first sentence. I think it was Martin Luther who said we have to have some humility before the gospel. We may read something and go, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness, how simple can you get? I know the gospel, that's simple. Time out. Think about it for a second. If the Apostle Paul writes that the gospel is the very, doesn't describe, it's not about, but it is the very power of God that is released like dynamite, since that's what the word power is, the Greek word is dunamis, from which we get our English word dynamite. How dare we ever think we get beyond the gospel? How arrogant do we think we are that says, I, I've got the God, I got the gospel, Jesus died for my sins, I know that. Let's move on. We need to have some humility before the gospel to understand the fact that we never get beyond its implications, its consequences in our lives. So we're going to let the word of God address us, challenge us. And I have no idea what the sovereign spirit wants to do, who he wants to afflict, who he wants to comfort, who he wants to challenge, who he wants to teach. But let's dive into the Gospel of Mark. This first early church and tradition tells us that Mark was the first Gospel that was written. And let's ask two questions of this first verse that says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just ask ourselves very simply, what is Mark about? And how does he go about accomplishing it? In other words, his aim or purpose and his strategy. First, let's acquaint ourselves real briefly. Who is John Mark? Who is this author? And we're told quite about both in the New Testament and you've got some external evidence from the early church. We learn that Mark was a very close associate, actually the attendant, kind of the secretary, the writer, to the apostle Peter. In Peter's first letter, he calls Mark my dear son. We learn in the book of Acts some of the history. Apparently the early church, Acts chapter 12 teaches us, met in the home of John Mark's mother, a woman by the name of Mary. Later in Acts, Mark went out with his cousin Barnabas and the Apostle Paul on the first missionary journey. For some reason, we're told later, Mark wanted to return to Jerusalem, and that caused a little bit of a disagreement, a rift between Paul and Barnabas, as Barnabas went with Mark, and they split up. But later, everyone must have made up, because when Paul gets to writing his letter to Timothy, he says that Mark was extremely useful to him. So there must have been some sort of reconciliation. And in the 4th century, around 325 A.D., there's a church historian, probably our first church historian, a man by the name of Eusebius, 
who in his church history wrote the following about Mark and his relationship with Peter and how Peter stands behind the Gospel of Mark. He says, During the reign of Claudius, Claudius being the emperor of Rome who died in A.D. 54, the all-good and gracious providence led Peter, that strongest and greatest of the apostles, to Rome, preaching the kingdom of heaven. And thus, when the divine word had made its home among them, and so greatly did the splendor of piety illumine the minds of Peter's hearers, that they were not satisfied with hearing once only, and were not content with the unwritten teaching of the divine gospel. But with all sorts of entreaties, they besought Mark, a follower of Peter, that he would leave them a written monument of the doctrine which had been orally communicated to them. Nor did they cease until they had prevailed with the man and had thus become the occasion of the written gospel which bears the name of Mark. So apparently, Peter and Mark were in Rome together, and this is in the A.D. 50s or something, and Peter, who was an eyewitness of Jesus, one of the twelve, followed him, lived with him, you know, ate with him, shared meals, saw his ministry, heard his teaching, all this, was sharing all of this with Mark. And that the Christians there in Rome entreated Mark, write down all of these things. Let's have a record of things. Now, let me ask you a question about this. Why is this important? Why am I giving you this did I suddenly have an epiphany over the summer and wanted to become a history teacher or something? Or does this have practical value to it? This is relevant to us because I want to ask you a question. Can we trust the Gospels? Can we trust what we have here? Are they reliable? I know the simple Sunday school answer. Well, yes, of course. And that is true. I'm not going to go astray from the simple Sunday school answer. But I want us to go a little bit deeper than that. Because, see, the gospel is making a very bold claim on our life, and it continues to challenge us. So I want us to go a little bit beneath the surface and think about the reliability and the trustworthiness of the gospels. Tim Keller cites a New Testament scholar, his name is Richard Bauckham, who in his book, Jesus and the, and the Eyewitnesses, makes what I think is the most cogent argument for the trustworthiness of the gospels. And he talks about how we need to have a well-reasoned faith. Not just a blind faith, but a well-reasoned faith. Listen to the words of Richard Bauckham. He says, The Gospels are not long-evolving oral traditions, but rather oral histories, written down from the accounts of, uh, of the eyewitnesses themselves who were still alive and active in the community. For decades after Jesus' death and resurrection, the people who were healed by Jesus... Think like people like the paralytic in Mark chapter 2 who was lowered through the roof by his four friends. Or the person who carried the cross for Jesus, Simon of Cyrene. Or the women who watched Jesus being placed in the tomb like Mary Magdalene. And the disciples who would follow Jesus for three years like Peter and John. All of these participants, eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus, continually and publicly repeated these incidents in great detail. For decades, these eyewitnesses told the stories of what happened to them. And then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote down these accounts, and so we have the Gospels. I've just shared with you how Mark was basing his account largely on what he learned from Peter. But Bauckham continues, he makes another observation. He says, the Gospels are too counterproductive in their content 
to be mere legends. He says, for example, it is astonishing that in the way that in the very foundational documents of the Christian church, we have a record that one of the greatest leaders of the church, Peter, was an enormous failure who even cursed Jesus in public. Bauckham writes, the only credible source for the account of Peter's denial and betrayal of Jesus would be Peter himself. No one else could have known the details we are given, and no one in the early church would have dared to highlight the weakness of its most revered and significant leader with such raw candor, unless that very weakness was an important part of the story, and unless, of course, those accounts were true. See, think about it. We said that Mark's account is pretty much based on what Peter told him. Can you imagine Mark and Peter meeting at the Starbucks or something, and Peter's going... Mark, let me tell you about, let's go over these accounts. Let's begin with me. I'm a jerk. <laughs> let me give you all the raw details of how I messed up. There was the time I tried to walk on water. That didn't go well. There was the time I cursed Jesus in public. That's not such a good thing. There was the time I denied Jesus. All of these accounts, think about this. In such graphic detail must lead to the reality that this is trustworthy. See, this is not just mere information. I'm challenging you. Bank your entire life on this. Find life in this person and in these claims. So what is Mark about? Mark is about the inbreaking of God's reign, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which leads us to our second point. Real briefly, how does he go about it? How does Mark go about this account of this life-altering, category-shattering, inbreaking of God into human life of history? He tells us the story. So we need to understand what the gospel is and what it means. Verse 1 is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The word gospel, the Greek word, is the word euangelion. And we need to understand things that this is and things that is not. Now, forgive me. Bear with me here a little bit. About a year ago, I was meeting with some of the campus outreach staff, and they had me go through one of their leadership tests that they do with their staff. It's called the Right Path Personality Test. So I went through it, and I took it, and then they gave the evaluation. And one of the things that was actually off the chart for me And now I love this because I can say to Evie, this is my personality. I'm just being what God created me to be. I love when I have that kind of excuse in there, is that I'm very precise. Those of you who know me know how precise I can be. Everything has to be in exactly its place. Precision. So now I'm about to be very precise with what the gospel is, what it's not, and give you some very, very important distinctions You know, Paul in his letter says that we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, which is much more than what to think. We have to learn how to think. So in this case, we need to learn what is the gospel, what it's not, what are events of the gospel, and what are consequences or effects or results of the gospel. So, for example, the word euangelion is real simple. It means news. It means good news. What the gospel is, by definition, is it's an announcement. It's not Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection. Those are the events of the gospel. 
They're part of it. Those are gospel events. They're also not the wonderful realities, and I'm not denying any of the realities of justification, sanctification. Those are effects. Those are benefits. Those are things that come out of the gospel or come through the gospel. But the word euangelion, the word gospel, means news. It means good news. It's an announcement. It's a proclamation. That's what what we're doing. That's why there's a difference between preaching and teaching. Primarily, there's definitely teaching involved when the pastor gets up and preaches, but primarily what a preacher is is a herald, a herald of the good news. That's why I want you to come to church no matter how you feel. When you're feeling on top of the world and when you're feeling terrible, no matter where you are, I want you to come because I want to herald the news of Jesus. N.T. Wright, great New Testament scholar, illustrates it real well in talking about these distinctions. He says, news in every case is not just something that happens out of the blue. Every announcement that's made, an announcement of news, will always assume a larger context. It is a new and unexpected development within a much longer story. We're reminded of that. We're going to begin with that first thing next Sunday. The Lord brings us back here next Sunday. You start with, as it is written in the prophet. Well, who's the prophet? We're introduced all of a sudden to people in the story. John the Baptist, Isaiah, a messenger. What's going on? We're introduced to verses that are quoting Malachi and Exodus. You do not know the gospel if you do not know the story. Because the gospel is news in the midst of a story. The story of God, his creation, a fall, and a nation, Israel, that was raised up to have a part in that story. N.T. Wright says, the news is about something that has happened because of which everything will now be different. He says, the news introduces an intermediate period of waiting. He says, what good news regularly does then is to put a new event, the new event in this case is that God in the person of Jesus, God incarnate, has broken into history and has moved in. That's a new event. And it's come into an old story, the story of creation, fall, and promise of redemption and restoration, pointing to a wonderful future that was hitherto out of reach and thus introduces a new period in which instead of living a hopeless life, people are now waiting with excitement for what they now know is on the way. He says the Christian good news, the euangelion, is supposed to be this kind of thing. The gospel of Jesus Christ comes as news within a larger story It points to a wonderful new future, and it introduces a new period of waiting that changes everything. The drama of the gospel, what it is, and how it changes everything. Just like we said earlier that in a sense, September 11th, 2001, Changed an awful lot. Changed about how we approach the world, how we think about things, how different people react, how governments react. The true story that defines, that shapes, and that changes everything in the world is the announcement of the news that God in the person of Jesus Christ has become king of the world. 
God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill, and he rules and reigns over everything. And the question is, how will you respond? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you so much for the drama of the gospel, what it is and how it changes everything, that it is your very power for the salvation, for a return from alienation, for forgiveness, for being vindicated and being validated. Lord God, we give you thanks and we praise you and we pray that we would, as we approach this, have some humility towards the gospel. That we would recognize we don't understand all its implications for our life, what it means for our relationships, what it means for our worship, what it means for how we view the world, what it means for how we view ourselves. So Lord, grant us humility, grant us an openness. Have authority over us as you rule and reign over all things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.